Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. When you're sitting (coughs) still and um, you get a sense of the breath uh, happening in the body, in the background, and then you put an object in the foreground. So the object that I recommended is sound, just listening. (coughs) Then uh, when sounds come and go, they are no longer distractions. They used to be distractions. But now they're not distractions. They're the object of meditation. So whenever your attention gets shipwrecked and stuck in one thing, on one island, then uh, you just come back again to the body breathing and sounds. And then you turn the sounds into an object that brings you back into the present moment. And last night, when we were studying the text, it said, you can do this with confusion. When you're confused, from a place of serenity, you notice that there's confusion. Just that moment, you notice there's confusion, and suddenly you're not identified with it. And then, as you notice the confusion, the confusion becomes Buddha. The confusion becomes Buddha. Once, the Buddha was uh, walking to a village, and somebody stopped him and said to him, What are you? And the Buddha said, What do you mean? And they said, are you a god? And the Buddha said, no, I'm not a god. And they said, are you a spirit? And the Buddha said, "Uh, no, I'm not a spirit. Are you one with supernatural powers? And the Buddha said, "Uh, no. Well, his name was Gotama. No, uh, not supernatural powers. And then the person said, well, then when you die, How do you want people to refer to you? And uh, Gotama said, um, as Buddha, as somebody who's awake. And that's how he got the name from this encounter. Somebody says to you, when you die, how should we remember you? And wouldn't that be beautiful if you could say, as somebody who was awake, awake to my life, awake to the lives around me, uh, even awake to my own confusion and delusions. Because let's face it, they never end. I mean, I know sometimes we think that we can make all our habits conscious. But consciousness is a very, very small part of mind. Mostly, I think we all know, and I don't even need to say it, but mostly we have unconsciousness, like mostly. And so you can never be fully conscious because the part of our personality that can be conscious is so small compared to this vast sea of unconsciousness. So, that's why when you're confused, you stop. 
and you say, this is confusion. And as soon as you change your attitude, the confusion is Buddha. It means the confusion is being awake. You're awake to confusion. You're awake to delusion. And then practice emptiness. That's what, that's what the text said. The word for emptiness in Sanskrit is uh, shunya or shunyata. Shu is a verb which means to swell. And it's the same verb that describes a woman who's pregnant. That somebody is so swollen with life that they're empty of singular thingness. Nowadays, we would call this deep ecology. It's an ecological viewpoint that sees that things are so intermixed that there's no such thing as a thing. And when uh, the term shunya gets translated into Sino-Japanese, uh, they translate the word shu as ku, which meant at the time sky. How do you practice emptiness? You see what's arising with a background of boundlessness, a background of a sky that's so big that it has no beginning and no end. Yes, you're angry. And yes, you have envy. And yes, you have menstrual cramping. Which wasn't the cramping I was referring to this morning. <laughs> and you experience all that with a background of this vast sky. This open awareness. And then you see Buddha you see from an awakened perspective. So emptiness is not a place you get to. Emptiness is not a meditative state. But emptiness is a sensibility or a strategy or a lens. It's a theory, it's a story that we use to train our attitude so that we can see that whatever is arising is empty of whatever we think it is. And it's vast. And it has a big sky behind it. So, this is the 14th of 59 slogans. And um, as I said yesterday, it's helpful to think that these are bumper stickers. And I encourage you to actually make these into bumper stickers. And that way, when you're walking around Madison as a crazy stressed person, uh, you'll see these bumpers that are reminding you all through the day. Do they have bumper stickers for bicycles yet? Yeah. Okay, so we should, get, we should make bumper stickers for bicycles. 59 of them that have all the slogans. What do you think? Wouldn't this be great? Let's do it. And then, and they should be glow in the dark. <laughs> so, like a biker rides by you, and you, and you, and, and, and it says, you know, um, do good. And you're like, oh God, I shouldn't, you know, go steal like I was just about to. <laughs> or a sign goes by and says, you know, avoid doing something stupid. And then you might go, oh, maybe I'm not going to say that dumb thing that I always say about Donald Trump. <laughs> See, I think there should be a vow that all of us make where we will not say bad things about Donald Trump. Because, like, everyone's already saying all these crazy things about Donald Trump, and he's saying all these crazy things about immigration and so on. So we should just, like, just shut up. <laughs> Don't say more bad things about Donald Trump. Do you know what I mean? 
You know, it's so easy to slip into that. So, then, line 15. Can, can we keep going? Yeah. And if you have a question, you can just put up your hand or a comment. Do good. Maybe I shouldn't say too much more. Just do good. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say last night. Don't be tough and don't be mean. Just do good. Say hello to people. Smile at people. And wish them happy birthday. <laughs> if you know someone that's lost somebody, bring them flowers. Nowadays, there are so many apps for sending flowers. It's so easy to just get on your phone and send flowers to somebody. What is it, 30 or 40 bucks? to send a really nice flowers. Maybe you know someone who has someone ill in their family. So send them flowers. Especially this time of year where our bodies are craving flowers. Send people flowers. If it's a neighbor, make them tea. Or just bring them a box of tea. If someone is raising money for an Indiegogo or Kickstarter campaign, give them money for their campaign. It feels so good to give somebody money. Give them money. So maybe you don't 100% agree with every little piece of their project, so what? It just feels so good to give them some money. Just give them some money. If you know somebody who owes you some money, and it's not a lot of money, don't be tough and forgive them of their debt. <coughs> just call them up and say, you know that money you owe me? Or you know that money you owe me that we never talk about? I've been thinking about it. Just a little. And I don't want to think about it. And that means if I'm thinking about you owing me money, you're probably thinking about it a lot. Because it's worse to be the person who <laughs> owes the money. And like, it doesn't matter to my life at all. But it probably matters to their life actually, quite a bit. So just give them a break, especially if they're young. They don't need to learn that lesson. Think about all the young people in this country who have tremendous student debt and have been a little pressured to make a decision at 19 years old how much debt to take on for a degree that they're not even totally <laughs> sure about. And then they graduate with this degree, have to get a career in that field because it would be too expensive to switch. But they're not really passionate about it. So imagine all the creative energy of young people that is stifled because of all this debt. So if someone owes you 300 bucks for a bicycle from a garage sale, just call them up and say, don't worry about it. Open doors and help people with their coat. You know, in Madison, you have to wear a coat <laughs> for, like, how many months? Ten. <laughs> the point is, just cultivate a caring sensibility, even if you don't really feel it. It doesn't mean you have to have a fake smile, but it does mean that you do things even if you don't really feel it. Remember yesterday... This isn't about doing what your heart says. This is about training your heart, otherwise known as fake it till you make it. <laughs> For example, when you go to practice yoga, sometimes you get on the front of your mat, you stand there, and next thing you know, you're lying on your back, picking your eyebrows. Have you ever done this before? 
Okay, picking your nose. All right. Stand on your mat, and then inhale, raise your arms up. And then exhale, put your arms down. And then just start adding to it. Sometimes we get on our mat and we're hungover from the wheatgrass party. <laughs> and we don't know what to do. So you just put one step in front of the other. And you start to remember some of the things we've been doing together. And then you develop a practice. Not based on how you feel. If your practice is based on how you feel, you're going to practice when you feel good. <laughs> and lie around watching Netflix when you don't really feel like practicing. And there isn't even good yoga on Netflix. <laughs> then the text says, avoid evil, which means to refrain from what's unwholesome. Unwholesome means refrain from actions that don't contribute to the whole. Or refrain from actions that are um, rooted in craving. If you're feeling anxious and there's a lot of craving in you, uh, spot it. And avoid taking whatever you're planning on taking. Avoid doing whatever you're planning on doing. And then appreciate lunacy. Traditionally, what this meant is um, make offerings to demons. Now, this is really, really important. Because here's the thing about spiritual practice. When you practice, you start waking up. And when you wake up, it creates a shadow. And the shadow is that the more you wake up, the more the old habits really want to come back. And the more they insist on getting a foothold in your new awakened life. So... Um, when I teach silent retreats, usually the night the retreat ends, all the teachers go out and we eat fries. Sometimes they come with a burger. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. So this weekend, you'll practice all weekend. Then you leave here after a whole day, and after a couple hours, the old habits are like, hey, like, what about me? <laughs> and they're going to want to climb into this space that's now been opened up. So we have to make offerings to the old habits. So now, instead of unconsciously and compulsively going for the ice cream... To use an example from my own life. <laughs> the workshop ends and you say, after dinner tonight, I'm going to have a little sweet something. And I'm going to have it, and I know it's not so good, but I'm going to have it because I'm making an offering to the part of me that really craves that. So I'm going to give it a little something. Otherwise, if you try and get too pure... In three or four days, it's going to be a disaster because you haven't made any offerings to the demons. And a prey. Have you ever seen that in a Buddhist text? It says not only should you make offerings, but you should pray. So, uh, we need to make offerings to demons, uh, but we also need to make offerings to uh, protectors. <coughs> and, you know, we don't talk about that so much. Like, in contemporary 
practice. We've been very influenced by practices from the field of social action, um, diversity training, anti-oppression training, um, clinical psychology. And so when we facilitate or teach or even practice ourselves in groups, we talk about things like um, having a good container and security and accessibility. And that's really been a, an important win. But one of the things that gets left out when we think that having a container is all we need is to remember that there's still one more thing, which is we need protection. We need protection from demons, especially our own. When I uh, teach um, longer meditation retreats, um, the first few days when I sit on my cushion, <clears throat> I um, visualize around me is a cocoon in the shape of a, an Ikea floor lamp. <laughs> Do you know the ones I'm talking about? The paper floor lamps? You know? And I imagine that I'm sitting in the cocoon and it's filled with yellow vapor. <laughs> and it has no holes except uh, a small ones for my nose to breathe and two holes the size of my feet so that if I had to get up and go, I could put my feet down and go. And inside of the cocoon are all of the necklaces that I used to wear when I was a kid. I'm not wearing them. They're just hanging in the cocoon. So um, when I was a kid, I always used to wear a necklace. Did anybody do this when they were a kid? I don't know why. I just always, I had one with like seashells from Florida. <laughs> I had these different necklaces. And um, so they're all hanging in, inside the cocoon. And I visualize that and, and, I, and I really stay focused on that for the first couple days sometimes of a longer retreat. And that helps me um, feel protected. That helps me feel protected. So I'm still listening to the sounds of the room. If I open my eyes, everybody's there. If I hear a sound, I'll look around. I'll check out what's happening in the room. But then I'll close my eyes and I'll go inside the cocoon. And after a day, maybe two days, I don't need it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Is ego one of your protectors? Ego? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think of ego as serving the function of protecting. Sure. Yeah. I have never thought about it that way. But yeah, if, if you wanted ego to be one of your protectors, you could. Is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. What is that visualization protecting you from? So, sometimes when I'm uh, facilitating, then uh, when I get really, really quiet, I feel like I can pick up on what's going on for people with real sensitivity. Yeah. But I don't want to do that on the first day or the second day. Because what's going on for people on the first and second day is like a disaster. <laughs> like everyone's all stressed out and whatever. It's just not worth it. So I just use my presence to keep calmness in the space. So we can all just settle. So for me, that's one of the ways I protect myself. And I always keep a salt, a bowl of salt uh, on the altar in the meditation hall. And the bowl of salt uh, receives all the negative energy in the room. And every day at the end of the day, it's somebody's job to take the salt, pour it into the river, and fill it up again. And if somebody did some kind of molecular new age study on the salt, I don't know if they would find anything. But for me and the person involved in that ritual, we know that there's a cleansing happening. And praying is a lot like this too. 
You don't need God to pray. You don't need a higher power to pray. You don't need a creator spirit or a belief in one to pray. You just need to pray. Is this something that you can do, like, not only in the meditation room or in your workplace or anywhere? Yeah, I'm just giving examples. Yeah. So you just keep it all aside so at the end of the day, it's just empty, so then it gets rid of all the negativity in the area? Yeah, yeah. So is there any physical limits, like how big an area, or is it? Start small. Start really small. Yeah. Start really small. But, but the text isn't saying anything other than that. It's just saying, do really good stuff. Avoid really bad stuff. And pray. <laughs> yeah. Pray for other people. Pray for yourself. Um, sometimes praying is just about getting a really clear picture of what you want. Or, sometimes praying is getting a really clear picture of who you want to benefit. And then we generate the energy of prayer in the here and now, which creates the conditions for concentration. When I think about prayer, I think it should be very specific and very focused. If you say stuff like, I pray for the United States of America, I would say this is verging a little bit on a belief or a conceptual framework. If you always think about the Buddha and that's your thing, or you have like a really nice one at home, then pray for the Buddha. Make the Buddha into an object of prayer. And then the Buddha will enter you as the energy of prayer. So if the energy of prayer is mindfulness, focus, and compassion, then the Buddha will enter you as mindfulness, focus, and compassion. If you're not into the Buddha and you're into flowers, and you meditate on flowers, and then you pray to the flowers, the flowers will enter you as mindfulness, concentration, and compassion. It's not about the object. It's about how in the here and now the energy of prayer enters you in the form of whatever the energy of your prayer is. So if, if prayer is allowing you to get really, really clear, then really, really clear enters you. If you knew your dad really well and he died, then your dad will enter you. Think about how uh, your father's cells are in you. So he's in you already, but you're just clarifying your attention. If you learn you're sick, then go into your father's cells in you and say, uh, pray for me, pray for my cells to get healthy. Because your father and your mother and your grandparents, even if you have no idea who any of these people really were, they're all inside you. So when you practice, your practice changes your ancestry because your ancestors are all alive in you. Michael. Yeah. I don't really, I, like the, the verb pray, mm -hmm. I don't get it. Okay, then just say meditate. Okay. I'm going to really meditate on my dad. I'm going to really meditate on these flowers. The effectiveness of prayer is something I can't speak about because I don't know anything about it. How can any of us really know anything about it? Just like I can't speak about God. I don't know anything about God. And I can't speak about revelation 
because I don't know anything about revelation. And I can't speak about punishment because I don't know anything about punishment. But I know something about concentration and I know something about the effectiveness and the healing nature of concentration. And so this line is saying something very, very unusual for a Buddhist text in the 12th century in Tibet, which is a prey. <laughs> if you walk around and you work with mindfulness, that's prayer. If you go into your garden and you garden with mindfulness, that's prayer. If you mark your students' papers and you do it with mindfulness and understanding, then that's prayer. If you're ill and you really turn inwards and meditate on the healing energy in your body, that's prayer. I don't know if you'll get stuff. I don't know if you'll win stuff. I don't know if you'll make things fall on people. <laughs> but the most important thing to understand is when you pray, you're not praying with your mouth. And if sometimes you have a prayer when you're asking for something, that's a really good thing because it allows you to ask for something. And it allows you to get really clear on something that's important to you. So you should sometimes ask yourself, if you're not into prayer, what would I pray for if I had to pray for something today? To get clear on what your intentions are. And if you're so unfocused that the only thing you're thinking about is, you know, for a, I don't know, what? Come on, just make something up. <laughs> Birthday, 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 chocolate. And the sangha really helps you do this. Community really helps you practice more mindfulness. In Judaism and in Christianity, we really see, unfortunately, how if the forms of the practice become hollow and don't have mindfulness in them, <clears throat> then they die. So anything that you do with concentration is prayer. Anything. And then, when you do that, i.e. line 16, whatever you meet becomes the path. Like we thought that we were on a spiritual path that was really special. And then we realized the path is empty. Which means the path isn't something we're following, like the eight limbs, or the six limbs, or the four limbs, or the twelfth limb, or whatever, or I'm a this practitioner. The path is what's right in front of you when there's understanding and mindfulness present when there's this energy of mindfulness present. There's a hand up somewhere there. There's another question. Uh, from last night, you talked a lot about it already, but I just was a little, um, just about the protection and about um, my experience doing uh, counseling with um, some uh, uh, people that are, have a lot of emotional dysregulation, a lot of suffering and trauma, mm -hmm. is that it's helpful to, I'm very sensitive, to feel where they're at, mm -hmm. not usually right away, but eventually working with them. But then, I, like we were talking before, I get kind of confused um, about what is mine and mm -hmm. what is theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering if you know, I get any of So the first thing I would say is it's really important for you to be relaxed <laughs> and watch comedy. <laughs> <clears throat> That's number one. <laughs> That's one thing. Be relaxed and watch comedy. Do you guys have comedy here? Like stand-up comedy? Or something? I don't know. Just something that's like funny. Um, just to keep your heart light. you know. And the second thing is um, to have some rituals around your office that you create so that there is um, 
a psychic distance between you and the people you're working with so that the ritual creates some protection so that in moments when there really is a merging, which is actually going to happen because healing can't happen without it, you don't take on uh, what you can't tolerate. And in order to do that, you have to be really relaxed. <coughs> and I'd say that the more people do work that's on the front line, the more they can unconsciously take on the suffering of other people. And if you aren't relaxed, it's totally overwhelming. And all the talk about mindfulness is impossible unless you're relaxed. So that's where I'd start. Have baths, eat well, watch comedy at the same time. Like in your bath, eating like really good stuff, laughing. With, uh, do they have like iPads for the bath? Waterproof, Waterproof iPads? It's a Go camera, but iPads. Yeah. Anyways, do you get what I'm saying? No, it's helpful. Yeah. Maybe also, like you were talking about the visualization of the Something like that, maybe put that into my practice. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's what I'm saying is that I think a lot of us don't think so much about protection. We think about safety, we think about containers, we, we have all of this more psychotherapeutic language, but um, I don't know, you know, I have to say just personally, like, I used to live in a city. I lived for 40 years in a city, and um, I'm really a comfortable urban person. I can kind of, I know where to walk, and I'm happy alone, and I like a lot of people, and now I live on an island in a rainforest, and there's no lights. So when you go for a walk at night, it's, it's really, really, really dark. And um, <clears throat> I think about spirits a lot, because when you're in a lit area, you never really think about spirits. You never need to think about spirits. But when you walk around in the forest, there's stuff everywhere. <laughs> there's stuff everywhere. And so, um, what indigenous culture doesn't have practices for protecting us from the spirits that are unhelpful? Right? When you walk in the forest at night, they're everywhere. You see them all over the place. So, uh, when you do psychotherapy with people who are really dysregulated or who have a lot of trauma, the room's filled with spirits. Filled with spirits. And if you're not keeping an eye out for those spirits, then uh, they'll nest in you. They'll nest in you and they'll make a home. And then you start taking on. Nowadays we call it secondary trauma or tertiary trauma. But then we start taking on the pain of other people. We don't want to take on the pain of We want to feel the pain of other people. But we don't want to take on their symptoms. So we have to be clean inside of us. And I don't know how to do that, other than to have a daily hygiene practice of cleaning out or flossing our bodies and minds and hearts. So we have an attitude of love, an attitude of openness, an attitude of meeting whatever's showing up as the path, and we're protected. When you think about protection, do you think in generalities or do you think about protection from specific things? And if that's the case, does that bring them on? Um, I don't know. <coughs> See what's right for you at that time. Like, as I said earlier about prayer, I don't think it should be general. I think if it's general, it's a bit loosey-loosey. Like when people say stuff like unconditional love, I'm like, 
why do you have to condition love with unconditional love? <laughs> like the love that I know is really conditional. It's f at specific times and specific ways. Unconditional love, I don't know what that is. Wait till your kids are 16. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still for your kids who are 16. Like, when we talk about things in too general of a way, like, oh, unconditional compassion. It's like, oh, great. Okay, I'm just really neurotic. <laughs> and like... And local. Give me something local. Climate change. Climate change. You can't deal with climate change. You deal with something local. And those local things network together. If you leave here and you're like, I'm going to go deal with homelessness, how do you deal with You start here. <laughs> you still have to have a neighborhood and a person. So, really specific, really clear. Does that, does that seem, yeah. Um, any other comments or questions? Yeah. When you were talking <coughs> about prayer, I was thinking about faith, because a lot of times mm. when people pray, they put faith in mm -hmm. that something will happen. And I'm yeah. curious what you think of that. Line 17, here it comes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have enough energy to keep going? Yeah. One more sentence? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> if you need to stretch your legs or something or have a piece of chocolate, it's perfectly fine. Do you want to hear a poem? Yeah. I've been reading some poems um, from a little book <clears throat> that I received. And uh, this is uh, by someone named David Budbill. Isn't that a great name, Bud Bill? Isn't that beautiful? Um, but before I read his poem, I wanted to read you how he wrote his bio. I loved his bio. So listen to this. Uh, people think I'm a Zen Buddhist. Maybe I am. I tell people I'm a Taoist Buddhist Methodist from Ohio. Sometimes I sit on a cushion and burn incense in front of my little homemade altar. I don't chant sutras. I do play the shakuhachi a little. I read a lot of ancient Chinese poetry. I live a reclusive life in the remote mountains of northern Vermont, where every year for the past 40, I've cut a year's supply of firewood, raised a year's supply of vegetables, and written poems. Isn't that nice? That's great. Uh, <clears throat> so here's the first uh, poem. It's called, uh, this was created, there's a uh, poetry festival that uh, my wife and I have been to that happens in the spring in Montreal. And um, th it's called the uh, Zen Poetry Festival, or something like that. I bet you there's one in the world, but it happens in Montreal. And they have all kinds of famous Zen people come. So they all contribute to this little book that gets made. He, he was one of them. Uh, this one's called uh, Bugs in a Bowl. <clears throat> this one's for Alicia in the corner. Uh, Hanshan, that great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago, said, We're just like bugs in a bowl. All day, going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing up the steep sides and sliding back. Over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. <clears throat> or, look around, see your fellow bugs. Walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here, here's a second, uh, a second one. It's called uh, Better to Have Less. The less you have, the less you'll lose, 
when it comes time to lose it all. I'll read that one again. Do you see the theme in everything he's writing? It's the same theme. The less you have, the less you'll lose when it comes time to lose it all. I mean, isn't this kind of why we practice? What's his name again? David Budbill. The reason why most of us come to practice is um, we have some privilege. We have a, a roof. We have a semi-decent place to live. Some people have a really decent place to live. Um, we can get around. Um, and you know you have a lot of privilege if you can move into a neighborhood where most of the people are like you and it's safe. Once you have uh, some privilege, it means you have some leisure time. Once you have some leisure time, what are you going to do? What do you do? What's left to do? Renovate again? <laughs> yeah. What's left to do is um, let go of accumulation. Everyone else is doing it already. Let them accumulate. You know the car you really want? Go find someone who has that car. And just be so happy for them. Pray for them. <laughs> just be so happy. You know the person who has the renovation that you really wish you lived inside of? <coughs> Go find that house that is like the cool house that you really want. And start to practice happiness for those people who get to have that cool architecture that's just a little bit more than you can afford. Don't go into debt to have that architecture. It's okay because you're gonna lose it. <laughs> and since your kids are not gonna be very well off, they're not gonna inherit it. And even if they did, they'll sell it right away. <laughs> Um, the last poem in the book is from um, Leonard Cohen. It's called uh, Roshi. Roshi is, um, basically just means elder. And it's usually a term reserved for uh, a teacher. Uh, he wrote this for uh, his teacher when his teacher turned 104. I think he's 106 now or something. I never really understood what he said, but every now and then I find myself barking with the dog or bending with the irises or helping out in other little ways. Do you want to hear it again? Do you guys know who Leonard Cohen is? He's Canadian. <clears throat> I never really understood what he said, but every now and then I find myself Barking with the dog, or bending with the irises, or helping out in other little ways. Isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. So in other words, uh, we're learning from a text that is about training our hearts, training our attitude towards compassion. But it doesn't mean you walk out of here and you try to be compassionate. It means you walk out of here and you just keep practicing the mindfulness. Steady awareness, without judgment, without a lot of commentary. Just practice attention, practice attention, practice attention. Relax. Start again. See the sky. And then what starts to happen is... The dog barks, and it's not separate from you. 
Spring comes, and you can feel it in your body. It's not just in the garden. And then someone needs something, and you don't even think about it. You just see they need something, and you bring them tea or flowers. And if it's someone that you don't care that much about, you send them flowers or send them tea. <laughs> so then, point four, you can make practice your whole life. So at first it was the thing you did sometimes, and now you see that it's the center of your life. Everything radiates out from your practice, and you cultivate a serious attitude. I love this sentence so much. What does that mean? It means you take your life more seriously because you see that it's evanescent and unreliable. You start to see that your body is unreliable, and so you start to take it more seriously. You start to see that your mental health is unreliable, so you start to take your mental health more seriously because of your genetics and because of technology and the intersection of those things. If one of your parents was an alcoholic, when you age, there's a good chance that some of those patterns are going to appear in your life. And we're in the age of dementia. And we're in the age of fear and worry and anxiety. That stuff gets passed down. So you have to practice. Plus, we have technology influencing our attention in very profound ways. So take your life more seriously and take really good care of your life. Take really good care of your attention. Take really good care of your body. And there's five ways you can do this, is what it says here. Oh, but it doesn't tell you the five, because you're just supposed to know this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, an interesting thing about this list is that you find it in both the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra, and you find it in all of the early Buddhist teachings. The Buddha had two ways of talking about these five. Sometimes he called them the five indriyas, the five faculties. And sometimes he called them the five powers. And sometimes they were called the five superpowers. <laughs> and I've always been confused by this, but then when I was preparing this week, I thought to myself, you know, everything's like this. Something starts out as a faculty, and then the more you practice it, the more you master it, and the more it becomes a power. You just do drills again and again and again. Did I tell you about Downton Abbey? Do you want to know something else about me that I've never told anybody? Okay. When I'm really tired and I'm like in a hotel or something and I just don't want to read or something, I watch tennis highlights. <laughs> this is what I watch, is I watch tennis highlights. I actually don't know anything about tennis. I don't play tennis. I don't really know exactly what I'm watching. But it, I like that it's not a team sport. And because um, <clears throat> I don't like team sports, except meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Compassion is the team sport that I like. But. So anyways, I really like tennis. And I don't watch the score or anything. I just like watching the highlights. And, um, but anyways, when I was watching the highlights, you know when you're watching something and on the side it shows you, like on YouTube, all the other things you could click next? So I was watching um, a game between Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova. Do you know who these people are? Well, Maria's in the news a little bit right now. She's innocent. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah. 
But anyways, one of the things, this is a long story, but one of the things that really interested me was, uh, that I clicked on, was there's videos of Maria Sharapova warming up. Like, lots and lots of videos of what she does to warm up. You should go, go watch this tonight. Of her trainer and all the amazing things they do to warm up before a game. It's really cool. So most people, they warm up for a game, they do half an hour or 40 minutes. of. She has like hours of really interesting drills and all of them she does for like 30 seconds, really fast. And happening all over the court. And it's really, really inspiring. Maybe it's inspiring to me because I'm not athletic and I don't know any of these things, but anyways. So I, I felt when I was watching this, I'm like, oh yeah. This is what we're doing when we meditate. We're learning all of these different ways of meditating on the breath, on the nostrils, behind the navel, in the back, on compassion, meta practice, tonglen practice, concentration practice, vipassana practice, koan practice, all these different techniques, and they're all drills. Why? Because we're <coughs> rehearsing to know how to respond. How do we respond? How do we respond in our lives in a way that's fresh? Right? If you're a tennis coach, you have to be really careful that your tennis player doesn't twist her ankle. Because you move side to side, the body really... Uh, is prone to wrecking ankles, right? Is that true? Does anyone here play tennis? Yeah, you play tennis? So ankle injury is probably like a big one. Okay, so if you're a tennis coach, you have to put your tennis player in ankle injury positions and teach them how to get strong in ankle injury positions. So you would like... I'm making this up. But you would like... Get them to stand like this on an ankle, maybe for like a minute, until it gets really strong in that position, because that's the position you're going to hurt yourself, right? So you have to train in all your injury positions if you're a good uh, athletic coach, so that in the on season, um, your superstar, which is your paycheck, doesn't injure themselves. Does this make sense a little bit? <clears throat> so the Buddha is saying, you need to cultivate a serious attitude and you need five things to make that happen, which are not listed here, but you know them already. The first one is shraddha, which means faith. Because we're in the United States of America, the word faith has a lot of baggage, <clears throat> which we don't have in Canada. <laughs> um, so I usually translate the word shraddha not as faith but as confidence just like if you say to someone have faith in meditation they'll say I don't really have faith but if they keep practicing they start to develop some confidence they start to develop some faith in the practice the second uh, strength is virya which is usually translated as energy, but I translate it as enthusiasm. So virya is enthusiasm. So confidence and enthusiasm. The third one, smurti, is mindfulness. The fourth one, samadhi, is <clears throat> integration or wholeness where you're one with experience to know what that feels like and the fifth one pragna is wisdom So it says, cultivate a serious attitude and do this by practicing. Remember what they are? 
confidence, enthusiasm, mindfulness, integration, and wisdom. And then, if you do this, number 18, which is the last line before our break, is then it doesn't matter if you're practicing in life or death. Because then our training all the time is a practice for death. We're practicing for death. You don't know what your death will be like. But let's say that you were present at your death. Let's just say that it's possible. So I don't mean like on opioids watching Oprah, <laughs> which is how a lot of people die. <coughs> I'm not joking. That's how a lot of people die nowadays. In front of the TV. Really drugged up. But let's say you could be present when you're dying. And let's say, to not be idealistic, that you're also in a lot of physical pain. You're ill, and uh, your family is there. Maybe a couple people are there. Maybe you're not even sure who they are. And uh, you're really uncomfortable. You know you're really uncomfortable. Uh, but anyways, um, the doctor's given you some meds, but you're still really in a lot of pain. And, uh, so then, you've been practicing for so many years. And you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to die now. So then how would you lie down? Well, maybe you would remember how you've been practicing the corpse pose every day. And maybe you'd remember that you can let gravity take hold of your body. And maybe you'd remember that um, your body can breathe without you. That you can actually just gently let breathing happen. And then, maybe you can forgive people. Maybe you can think about or have different images come of people in your life flashing in front of you. And when there's one that gets you, you can just open your heart to that person. But that's kind of strange, because if you contemplate that, then why not just do that every day? <laughs> that's what this line is saying. It's like, okay, if you're doing all these practices to get ready for your death, keep in mind this is in Tibet where they were like kind of obsessed about death. It's saying, well then, like, isn't that for now? <laughs> Why don't we do that every day? In other words, these practices that we're doing will help us when we're dying. Because we don't know what our death is going to be like. It might be really scary. It might be really peaceful and beautiful. It might be as good as your wedding with less organizing. <laughs> <laughs> and far fewer people. <laughs> and also, sometimes a death looks really tragic on the outside, but we don't know what it was like on the inside. Sometimes, maybe there was a trauma that led to a death, and that's what we see from the outside when we tell the story about the death. But we don't know what it was like on the inside. The last moments could have been really peaceful. So these are good things to think about. Uh, not to create sorrow in the heart, necessarily. That's okay, though. But also to remember that our life is so precious. And sometimes we're so obsessed with our neurotic patterns that... All we can do is accumulate things and stories and theories about people. And all that stuff we have to let go of when we die. So this text is saying if you want to cultivate practice, then you should practice for death and life. And the thing I love about this line is 
It doesn't say if there's a different thing you should do for death or life. It just says practice. <laughs> practice for death. Practice for life. We're all going to lose our life. Every single person here. You might have brilliant theories about what's going to happen when you die. But the truth is, we don't know what's going to happen in three seconds. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen next time we inhale. We don't know. So it's good to have stories, it's good to have beliefs, and it's also good to know that they're stories and beliefs. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> so uh, thank you for listening. <clears throat> um, what I'd like to do is have a little break, and then uh, we'll do uh, some more practice together.